Welcome to the Tamarind Learning Podcast, where host Cindy Radu speaks with experts on many topics relevant to the ultra-high net worth family and family office. Cindy was author and co-author of numerous articles related to trusts, family enterprises, and estate planning, and co-authored taxation and estate planning in Canada for many years. She also shares her expertise as a consultant, advisor, and educator to those in the family enterprise space. Cindy is the Chief Learning Officer of Tamarind Learning Canada, an online wealth education platform that develops practical, foundational learning programs for beneficiaries and their advisors to help them prepare for the responsible stewardship of wealth. Welcome to the Tamarind Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Radu, Chief Learning Officer for Tamarind Learning Canada. Tamarind Learning is an online wealth education platform that develops practical, foundational learning programs for beneficiaries and their advisors to help them prepare for the responsible stewardship of wealth. As part of the Tamarind Learning Platform, I have the privilege to speak with experts on topics relevant to families of wealth and family offices. It is my pleasure today to introduce Russ Haworth, a specialist family business advisor based in the United Kingdom. Russ helps proactive families gain clarity and alignment around their family business. He is an advisory board member and faculty member with the Ultra High Net Worth Institute and has an advanced certificate in family business advising from the Family Firm Institute. Russ is sought after as a speaker and hosts the widely acclaimed Family Business Podcast, for which he was recently inducted into the Family Business United Family Business Hall of Fame. Russ, congratulations on that. So a particular note for our topic today, uh, Russ is the co-director of the Quest for Legitimacy, which is a groundbreaking model for successfully navigating the unique struggle of growing up in a prominent family. So Russ, I thought what we could do is start with um, really no better example of this unique struggle um, with the recent ascension of King Charles to the throne and Arguably, of course, the royal family is one of the most successful global family businesses. So what what kind of thoughts do you have around what's going on in the UK right now in this idea of succession? Yeah, so I think it's it's fascinating and very timely given um, the release of of the book and, and the work that we've been doing in terms of the quest for legitimacy, because we refer to those people that we spoke to for the project of the rising generation rather than the next generation because next generation tends to paint pictures of age brackets whereas we would play, place um, Prince Charles as he was in that rising generation and at the age of 73 he then gets the um, succession to the throne and to become king for something that he's been preparing for his entire life and yet I can imagine, and, and despite, although I'm in um, the UK, I don't know uh, the royal family um, <laughs> personally, but I can imagine that the the feeling of you prepare for something all, all your life and the reality of it can seem very different to how it can be perceived mm. when you're preparing for it. And particularly at a time, I think we have to remember the human element of this is that his mother has passed away and a very strong, um, prominent presence in his life is no longer there. And so the, the 
kind of requirements for him in his role as king. He's also now the patriarch of the family and the kind of focal point for that family as well, which is a, a big step um, for anybody to take. So it's, it's fascinating in terms of seeing how it transpires and it feels kind of um, a bit depersonalized to, to look at it in that sense. But, but I think it's important we do because it, it is a, a public example of uh, what can happen in many family enterprises and, and family businesses. It's interesting to note, you know, there he is at the age of 73 moving into, into this role. And there's, you know, historically, I think been some speculation about whether it would just bypass and go directly to, um, uh, to, to William, but, um, but it hasn't. And, uh, and it's interesting from from this side of the pond to watch like how detailed the succession is, even things like what side, what way his face is going to face on your coins now, uh, and probably our coins here in Canada for that matter. I don't know what they're going to do, but um, but this yeah. this whole idea of the term Prince Charles syndrome that we used to talk about. Um, I guess we probably still in this context, it'll be a, a very much, I think we'll hear more and more people talking about this now that the succession has actually happened. But but what is, um, maybe if you can share your thoughts on what Prince Charles syndrome is and you know how we've talked about that as, as advisors in this space. Yeah, and, and one of the... Uh... Uh, points of interest I think around this is, is whether we continue to call it Prince Charles syndrome or does that title now pass to becoming mm-hmm. Prince William syndrome because he's going to be in a similar position if we look at it just from a longevity perspective Charles is 73 and his mother passed away at um, 94 I think she was and so if, if he were to pass away at the same age as his mother that's still 20 years for Prince William to wait by which time mm. he'll be in his 60s so again it the, the the sort of process repeats in in that sense but but I, I, if we go right the way back to when um, Charles was born he didn't know at that stage he was a prince he didn't know what he'd mm. been born into and then over the course of his childhood as an adolescence and adulthood he has been preparing to take on a role from a giant in his life in the form of his mother, who is also the monarch of the country that he mm-hmm. lives in and, and beyond the, in terms of the Commonwealth. And so that that kind of syndrome of, of having to wait until somebody passes away in order to step into a role that you are being prepared for for a very long time, it is, I mean, I can only imagine how complex it must feel for him as an individual because it's you know been preparing for something your entire life and as I say I think it possibly felt different on day one to how Mm. he thought it was going to feel because I think inherently as humans we're we're terrible at uh, understanding how we're going to feel about a certain thing um, in the future but one of the things that our research found particularly for those who grow up in the shadow of prominence is how isolating an experience it can be and how lonely it can feel. And if you imagine, if you take the the monarchy out of it and and put it into, say, a family business or a family enterprise context, 
we would have friends that we could talk to and we'd have peers that we could talk to about it and perhaps siblings and, and other family members. But as a prince, there aren't a huge number of, I don't expect, prince peer groups that are set up to help discuss the kind of roles and responsibilities that come and the impact of that. And so, I, again, I imagine, I don't, I don't know this, but I imagine the experience for him was also quite an isolating one, quite a difficult one to navigate because um, it's a it's a unique set of circumstances for him to have to grow up in, uh, and he had no choice. He didn't he didn't yeah. apply. It was a, as a, a result of the birth. So, of so his situation would be arguably very, very, very different in many on many levels. But in terms of um, many families, don't really have a succession plan per se, whereas in the royal family, it seems to be highly, highly set out what that what that succession plan looks like with limited options to opt out. Um, so what what parallels or differences do you see between again what's happening there with that sort of detailed succession and what you see in what you saw in the interviews that you did for for Quest for Legitimacy? So in, in terms of the, it was called Operation London Bridge mm. here. So it was something that was planned out over many, many years in anticipation of the inevitable scenario of the Queen passing away. What's interesting to note, and as far as I understand it, we, we have to take these things with a pinch of salt if they're coming from the press because we, we don't know whether that's mm. factually true or, or not. But my understanding is a lot of the elements around how Operation London Bridge was implemented had to be adjusted because of the time of day that mm. the Queen passed away. So she passed away in the afternoon, it's announced at 6pm, I think, here in the UK. And because of that, what would normally be day zero, which is the day that that's announced, they had to move on a day because 6pm in the evening wasn't the right time. Now, considering how many years that they've had in terms of planning this, it's also worth recognising that, that had to adapt right at the very point that the plan first comes into place. It's still far mm. better to have that plan than not, because imagine, I mean, you can't imagine what it would be with no organisation, considering how significant her role was. But also the ability to adapt that, I think, is, is an important element. What we found through the research, particularly around growing up in the... We, we termed it as a land of giants. So what's it like to grow up in, in uh, the land of giants? And nobody that we spoke to said, I don't know what you mean by a giant. They could all recognise that mm. phraseology as, yeah, I've grown up um, around this uh, prominent character or prominent achievements. And a lot of it is how am I going to measure up? How am I going to compare? Am I enough to be able to um, step out of the shadow of the giant in my life? And that's where I think the isolation comes from, is the, the fact that you're questioning because of mm. the achievements of others, your own sort of validity and agency on terms of making your own contribution to the world. And that, I think, is it's all very well having a plan for what happens to share ownership or the ownership of assets or decision-making and control, and, and that's all very, very important. But what we found was those individuals had a desire to have their own legitimacy. 
to be able to have agency and control over their own lives. And I think that's the area where our work can really complement the other work that's been done in that space because you have to prepare the ground for um, the eventualities of succession, but it's equally as important to prepare those individuals to be able to um, step into that role as confident. I really like that sh- that shift, that kind of mindset, sh- not a shift, an expansion. I think it's an expansion of the thought processes that we need to go through as advisors and, and as families, this awareness. And there was an interesting term that came up in, or word, I guess, that came up in Quest for Legitimacy called luminality. And when I when I was reading that and sort of thinking about our, our time together today, it occurred to me, and I'm very interested in your thoughts. Number one, if you can share with us what luminality means. But uh, to me, Prince Harry is a very interesting model of um, in the public eye of this idea of luminality. Uh-huh. Yeah, and th- so to, to give an overview of, of liminality is it, the feeling of, of liminality is it, you're a bit lost. You're feeling a bit betwixt and between. Um, it can be confused or associated with mm. kind of a depression um, Jamie, who uh, wrote the book and, and led the research, is a psychologist. And so he has a very clear definition of depression for, from his work um, of doing that. So liminality is much more of an accurate description of that feeling of being a little bit lost and, and bewildered by um, events that have happened in, in life without it being a clinical diagnosis of, um, say, a, a depression but the impact of it is real. It's how people feel. And part of what we're trying to do with the work is to help people realize that the opportunities for growth come out of these times where you're feeling a bit lost, a feeling that feeling of mm. betwixt and between. So periods of reality, it might be tempting to try and avoid those. And it might be tempting for parents to, to try and protect their children from those feelings of being a bit lost and, and, um, uh, betwixt, as I say, betwixt and between is kind of the best description I think we can have of, of that feeling. But what we found from the research is that's where the opportunity for growth comes from. That's where the resilience is built. That's where um, there's four phases to, to the quest for legitimacy. And that's where the final phase comes from is that ownership phase. I'm mean, not talking of ownership of assets, but ownership of one's life comes from those moments of growth that um, follow um, liminality. I think a global example as well, I know we're talking about specifics mm-hmm. around the, the royal family, but global um, experiences, what we've experienced with COVID. So again, we, we link liminality to what we call breaking points in uh, the book. I keep saying mm-hmm. we, Jamie wrote the book and he's done a fantastic and We should just say it's Jamie, um, Jamie Weiner. I, I, just, I don't think I've acknowledged that. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so Jamie um, Weiner wrote the book, and uh, he uses the stories from the people that we spoke with to really highlight how these um, breaking points occurred. Um, a global example mm. is COVID. Something came along that we weren't really expecting and anticipating. It knocked us back a little bit. And then that feeling of betwixt and between and lost, I think we're seeing played out in, in what's being termed as the great resignation, is that search where a lot of people have had the time to think, actually, I want more than 
my nine to five. I want to find something that has more purpose and more meaning to it. And therefore they're shifting their behaviors around as a result of that. So if you imagine that on an individual basis, that these breaking moments that happen in people's lives, leading to these periods of liminality, the growth that comes out of that resulting in taking far greater ownership of your life, that in essence leads to that feeling of legitimacy. I have agency, I can give back to um, the academics that we work with, we refer to it as mm-hmm. institutions. So the family is an institution. So if the desire is to give back to that family, I've got the confidence to be able to do that as a result of this. If the institution is the family enterprise, then there's the ability to, to do that. But um, the, the quest is kind of um, independent of whether that's a role within the family business, family office, family enterprise. Um, it's, it's universal. So can you share access. maybe an example from the book that of a family that really exemplifies this? I, I mean, I know there's many examples, but one of your, your favorite examples. Yeah. So, so one of the, I think the clearest examples of what we identify as the um, phases of the quest. So if we start with the awareness phase, one of my favorite stories of the awareness phase, it's basically the point in your life where you become aware that something is a little bit different in terms of how you grow up compared to how your friends or, or other people might be growing up. So Prince Charles would be, mm. you know, we live in a palace. Not all of my friends at school live in a palace. So there, there's very obvious ones. One of the, the um, favorite stories from the research is somebody who grew up in a, a diamond um, family. And her father taught her to count using oh diamonds. And she then went to school and realized not everybody learns to count using <laughs> diamonds. But it's just normal, right? In in her life, that's not what normality looks like. But it's different to how others would be. So, so that awareness starts to, to creep in. And that leads to a tug of war phase. And that's where you're kind of drawn to the outside world, but you're still being pulled by the world you're growing up in. So it can create some some funny examples where you know kids go to school and they come back with a funny quip or a story that somebody's told and the parents are like, oh, that's cute. And then as they get older, the kids come back and have perhaps other experience or other learnings from um, other people that aren't so cute and that can cause tension uh, within the family around um, that side of it. But that tug of war happens going beyond that into the exploration phase is where you have again a a really good example from the book Um, we refer to her as our queen of exploration Um, but she went and uh, took on lots of different experiences that exposed her to lots of different cultures now as a result of her father's family business failing and, and going bankrupt And as part of the kind of feeling that she had around that, she wanted to go and explore and and, uh, take in other uh, cultures. So her mum helped her design a way that she could travel around the world and experience all of these things. Um, uh, And that is what we would term as uh, an exploration phase. And then probably it it sounds strange to have this as a favourite story because it's quite a... I'll tell the story and, and you'll understand why it sounds strange to call it favourite. But um, 
one of the, the people we spoke with is a, a, a Canadian guy called Rishi. And he was on holiday after the um, World Cup mm -hmm. in Brazil. He received an email from his parents basically saying, you don't have a job in the family business anymore. And he'd been instrumental in setting up some support functions behind all the business that, that was key to, to a number of enterprises operating well. And so he was effectively fired by email by his parents yes. on holiday. And so that for him was a big breaking moment. He went off and did some exploration. He got uh, an MBA, became um, very accomplished in, in his own right. And the step of taking ownership for him, he didn't speak to his parents for two and a half, three years. But the step of taking ownership for him was him walking down his parents' driveway to knock on the door. His father opened the door and was able to say with a lump in his throat, thank you to his son for reaching out because it's not something his father felt he could do. And so that was for Richie, that was taking ownership of his life, was being able to rebuild that bridge and have the agency and confidence to be able to um, go and do that. So it, it's, it has a happy ending, that story. But in terms of it, that's why I said about it being one of, one of the favourites. I think it's a very good uh, example of taking ownership and the result that can come from going on your quest. Um, but obviously it was very painful for those who were involved. So I don't want to suggest mm. that as a way forward for people, but yeah. um, highlights the, the areas of the quest. So so you mentioned four phases, and I think we've covered covered three. Is there one other? No, so, sorry. So aware, awareness okay. is the first phase. Yep. Then there's tug of war. Then that exploration phase. Okay. And then the okay. ownership phase um, to, to complete it. The, the important element around it as well is it's oh. non-linear. So it's not a case of saying, right, let's follow stages one, two, three, four, you get your certificate and you are um, legitimate in that sense. Um, there can be repeats of moments of awareness. There can be elements where that helps to trigger off more exploration and the need to take more ownership. Um, Jamie Weiner, who, who wrote the book, part of his own quest for legitimacy was writing the book and the stories and experiences that he heard, he was able to relate to his own life and, and that triggered off more awareness and more exploration and ownership for himself as well. So it's a lifelong quest rather than it being something where you can kind of, um, you know, as I say, go through stages one, two, three, four and n never have to um, sort of deal with it again. It, Chris, it's this, has been, this has been so absolutely exciting. fascinating and we could probably talk for another hour or two or more uh, just on this on this topic. Um, can you just as sort of a takeaway and a wrap up, I'm sure many people who are listening will be intrigued to, to learn more. We know about the book, The Quest for Legitimacy, but are there other resources or website that people might want to go to just as a follow up to our conversation today? Yeah, so the best place for people to head to find out more is the Quest for Legitimacy website, which is questforlegitimacy.com. There is details there on uh, the research, the book, um, uh, articles and blogs that uh, Jamie has written. 
um, around that and you can join our mailing list there as well so you, that, that's the best place for, for people to head to excellent well more. thank you so much for that and thank you for being with us from the other side of the pond and the other side of the mic <laughs> microphone today um, yeah. we'll look forward to hopefully having a follow up a follow up podcast in the future thanks very much for your time Russ sounds great thanks very much for having me thank you <laughs>